are listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the one day late Friday, um, April 8th, 2022 science edition of Carbon Removal Newsroom. I apologize that we're a day late, but I have been traveling, so we could not make the normal Thursday recording happen. Today, I am super excited because I've been on a panel with him before, and I'm always uh, was so impressed with what he had to say to have um, Simon Nicholson, the co-director of the American University Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy on the show. Hi, how are you? Doing well, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, we're, I'm really excited to chat with you today. And just myself uh, as the other co-host, so Radhika Mulgothkar, head of supply and methodology at NORI. Um, today, we're going to be talking about the third of three reports that was released by the IPC on climate mitigation. Um, it recommended enormous funding levels to deploy, deploy renewable energy to reduce carbon emissions from power generation, while suggesting more funding to research and invent the technologies needed to decarbonize other emitting sectors. But as a continuing theme, carbon removal continues to be something that they are advocating for and believing in. Um, unfortunately, under any future scenario, carbon removal is necessary to limit warning and I, warming, and I only say that's unfortunate because um, pretty much all pathways lead to about 1.5 degrees of warming and nearly all also lead to 2 degrees of warming, even if you include large-scale uses of forestry, BECs, and DAC. Um, the report also found that a wide range of stakeholders will need to move forward fast to deploy high levels of many different types of negative emission approaches. And so kind of what does this mean today um, for a business, governments, and civil society? And today, as I said, joining us to discuss this 3,000-page report is Simon. So um, first off, Simon, maybe you can give our um, listeners just a recap of the IPCC process. Um, what does working group three mean? And kind of the overall focus of the report and how it it uh, lands chronologically in the with these other two reports that preceded it. Thanks, and there's a helicopter flying overhead. I'm in Washington DC just as we begin to speak. So, um, so the the IPCC, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is the United Nations mandated body responsible for assessing periodically global climate science. And so the IPCC is made up of hundreds of scientists from across the world. And the main thing that they do is they review the science which is out there in the world in journals and so forth. And they help us understand what we know collectively, we human beings about climate change. Um, the main thing that the IPCC does is every five years or so release these assessment reports, these big, as you said, 3000 pages or more review of the scientific literature. Um, this is the sixth assessment cycle that we're going through right now. Um, so these reports have been uh, coming out over the last uh, 18 months or so. Um, and as you signaled, Radhika, in your intro, um, the, the reports are organized around different working groups. So the IPCC has three different working groups. The first working group looks at the physical state of climate science. The second working group at impacts associated with climate change. And this third working group report, which was just released, is concerned with mitigation pathways. Um, so to say that more clearly, um, working group one is how did we get into this mess? 
working group two, how bad is the mess? And working group three, what do we need to do about it? Um, and just from a just from a purely curiosity perspective, how do they coordinate all of these scientists across all these vast regions and create consensus in what I would imagine is not a totally settled area? Yeah, I mean, it's a, there's, a, there's a long answer. I'll try and give the slightly shorter version. Um, lots and lots of meetings. Right? <laughs> um, there, there are lead authors, coordinating chapter authors, um, uh, an established process of review by which some pieces of the scientific literature are assessed across multiple different uh, pieces of these working groups. The working groups themselves have to coordinate so that there's consistency across the different working groups and their assessment work. Um, and then ultimately the summaries have to go through a political process. So the government sign off on the on what's called the summary for policymakers. Um, so that there's a political aspect to the process as well. Um, and in the age of Zoom, it has been, of course, even more complicated because people can't get into rooms together for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, and so hours and hours and hours of time from some of the leading scientists in the world is, is the answer to how this process takes place. And what is the official body that signs off for the US? Political body that you mentioned. Um, for the US, um, so, yeah. you know, so, the, so the United States has State Department representation in the political okay. process. Okay. That ultimately signs off on behalf of the United States um, for, um, on the report. Well, thank you for uh, indulging me on those questions. I've <laughs> always been curious on how you can wrangle so many people and get something moving. I mean, I'm sure you'll be starting on the next report tomorrow because it probably takes five years to get through all of this. Um, so this report was focused on mitigation and um, was there any new science that was kind of discussed in this report and mitigation or is this all about existing science? Um, and how did it, how did it, how does it come together in the sense that how do you choose which areas of the science to focus on? Because it's so broad. Yeah, um, so, so the IPCC as a body is not responsible for doing its own science. It's a review body, so it looks at the science which is already out there. But of course, many of the people who are part of the IPCC are also responsible for the, the creation of the science, right, which the body then assesses. Um, what they do is that they create a cutoff date. So anything that's published by a certain cutoff date can find its way into the report. Um, and so in the scientific community, there's always a scramble when the IPCC announces its cutoff date to try and get stuff published so that it can be assessed by the by the body, right? Sounds um, like the Oscars a little bit. You got to get your movie. <laughs> yeah, kind kind of like that, I guess, for for scientists. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and then what the IPCC does is it tries to assess basically the full sweep of science which is out there. You know that they, they try and collect absolutely everything, and these scientists read. Um, thousands and thousands of papers. Um, and then it goes through a, a, a process by which you try and work out what's known uh, with, with what level of certainty and with mm -hmm. what level of agreement across the literature, right? Okay. And so when you, when you read these IPCC reports, they always um, have little brackets after the statements, mm -hmm. um, known with less certainty or more certainty. Um, and that's that's the review process, this expert analysis of the literature. Mm -hmm. uh, how much do we actually know about something? 
and is there disagreement within the literature about something and that then gets reflected in the language that's used mm -hmm. in the report. So you can have high certainty and high disagreement. Is that a possibility even? <clears throat> no, so, so if, if there were high certainty about something, um, meaning that we have a, a good amount of information or science on it, but in the literature, there's lots of disagreement. Mm -hmm. Um, then uh, a phrase like medium certainty would be used in the okay. report to try and capture the fact okay. that there is lots of disagreement in the literature. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's quite a process, obviously. Lots of people involved, lots and lots of subjectivity and objectivity at the same time. I mean, we how all of these things are on a scale. So um, I'm curious what the authors found about carbon removal in these mitigation schemes and you know your thoughts around how they um, characterize the readiness of carbon removal. Hmm. So, I mean, a, a number of things to say. Um, in addition to these periodic assessment reports, the IPCC also puts out um, special reports from time to time. Right, and, and as most folks listening will know, there was a special report from the IPCC on the 1.5 degree target from the Paris Agreement just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, in that 1.5 report, the IPCC was tasked with trying to work out whether the world could stay beneath the 1.5 degree warming threshold and what that might take. And it was made very clear from that report that carbon removal needs now to be a part of the mitigation conversation. It's hard to imagine staying beneath 1.5 degrees without probably large amounts of carbon removal. Mm -hmm. um, this this um, working group three report um, from the sixth assessment cycle continues that conversation. It's saying very much the same sorts of things about the need for carbon removal if the world is serious about 1.5 or even two degrees. Mm -hmm. so, there's, so there's that piece of it. Um, and then this report um, does some sharpening um, and, it, and it sharpens in some interesting ways. I mean, one of, one of the things we see from this working group three report is um, an argument that carbon removal is going to need, be needed not just in the long term, but is in fact going to be needed in the short term mm -hmm. to tackle climate change, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it says, look, there, there are three roles. This, this new report says basically there are three roles for carbon removal when it comes to tackling climate change. The first role is to help to, um, alongside emissions abatement and all of the other work that we need to do with mitigation, we need carbon removal now um, as, as, um, as, as, as we try to slow, um, slow global warming in the, in the near term. Um, the second role is in the kind of short to medium term to help to offset against how to abate sectors. Mm -hmm. Things like aviation, heavy industry, there's going to be a need for carbon removal um, for as long as uh, uh, fossil fuels are being used in those industries or sectors. And then the third role, which we're, we're all kind of aware of, is down the road using carbon removal to try and deal with legacy emissions, the carbon that's already in the atmosphere, particularly in overshoot scenarios. So if the world starts to warm too much, carbon removal might be needed down the road to try and return to um, more livable temperatures. Right? So when, when you add all of that together, what the IPCC seems to be saying is, um, we can't wait. Yep. Work needs to happen now on carbon removal uh, because it's needed alongside other forms of, of, of mitigation. 
Um, and also we need to know what's out there, right? Because if, if it turns out that lots of investigation now reveals that certain carbon removal pathways are going to be too difficult, mm -hmm. that would be worth knowing right now in the near term before we bank too much on those things materializing down the road. Yeah, it's such, a, it's such an interesting question, right? I had um, your former colleague, Will, on, Will Burns on a few weeks ago, and we were talking about ocean CDR, and it feels like people are very excited about that space, right? But to your point, we actually don't know how effective it is. We haven't done like the basic scientific research, and how much do we want to get excited about something that we know so little about, really, in terms of its you know, mitigation and impacts in other ways. So I'm, I'm glad that the scientific community is sort of starting to try to grapple with that because it was always a little bit concerning to me that they were wanting to push this down the road till later. And I'm glad because it seems like later is now. But I wonder um, from your perspective, and this kind of harkens back to some of the conversation we had on the panel, a little bit outside the science piece, but how do you deal with one, the moral hazard question that people always raise, right? Like, oh, hard to abate, then they won't even try to abate. And two, how do you deal with, you know, communities who feel like carbon removal will in the end be worse for them? You know, I'm talking specifically about communities of color who have definitely seen the worst end of oil and gas and um, can't see through to working with oil and gas to develop these technologies, which probably will be necessary in order to move carbon removal forward. You don't miss around, Radhika. These, these, are, <laughs> these, these, are, these are some of the big questions, right? Um, so starting, starting with this IPCC report, one thing that the report makes clear is um, the less work done now to clean up energy and food and transportation systems, the more reliance will be needed down the road on carbon removal. Right, something we know, but the scenarios in the report make that starkly clear. The work needs to start now on all of the work that we've needed to do for decades, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, that, and that we've been too slow on. Um, and so if we're concerned about those moral hazard questions and about uh, negative potential impacts from carbon removal, then we should double down collectively on doing all of the other stuff that needs to be done. Um, you know, the, the broader questions about moral hazard and impacts on particularly vulnerable and frontline communities, we're going to be wrestling with those for as long as we're trying to wrestle with climate change. Um, part of the response is that there are no easy answers anymore when it comes to climate response. Mm. Um, it's not like uh, uh, trying to clean up the energy system um, is necessarily going to always be to the benefit, for instance, of frontline communities, mm -hmm. right? Because how that gets done, uh, who has um, who has the say in the technologies that get utilized, uh, where minerals come from, all of these sorts of things are going to be uh, are going to have impacts on people, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so I'm I'm dancing around the question in part because there's no easy answer to it, Radikan. Um, I, I I think. Uh, part, you know, so look, part of what we're doing from the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy, as you know, is trying to understand uh, the, the sorts of conversations that need to take place so that environmental justice perspectives and communities are more present in the carbon removal evaluation and broader conversation. 
Um, and at the moment, environmental justice communities in some ways feel shut out from the conversation um, or have made strategic determination or um, just an assessment based on past interactions with policymakers and with fossil fuel interests that it's not worth getting involved in the conversation. And so carbon removal options are packaged um, along with others as false solutions, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and it's totally understandable that that's the starting point because it's too easy to imagine carbon removal being used as a lifeline for the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. It's too easy imagine imagining carbon removal options being deployed in ways that just reinforce historic harms. Mm -hmm. Right, that make things worse for the very communities that carbon action, climate action should be helping. Yep. Uh, but at the same time, we've got to get over that, right? We've, we've, we've got to get over the false solutions framing to some extent because the science makes just abundantly clear that some amounts, probably large amounts of carbon removal are going to be necessary, right? So with that as the starting point, carbon removal will be necessary. Um, but what we say at the Institute is that not all forms of carbon removal are created equal. Yeah. Right. We, we need we need kind of deep investigation conversations that involve everybody who might be impacted, so that we can understand how to do this stuff right. Yeah, I mean it's, uh, and I don't know if you have perspective on this, but it's such a to me interesting carbon removal is such an interesting intersection of science, policy, social justice, um, that it's there's so many competing interests, but also so little time that to build the trust almost feels like we don't have time to build the trust that we're trying to solve problems that we didn't create but are kind of being pushed on us but we don't have the time to like do enough work so they feel so there is a level of comfort i mean i'm just thinking about the usda rfp that came out a couple weeks months ago or a month ago where they wanted people to respond in eight weeks yeah. To this huge thing and I my first thought was actually what you had said at uh, that panel we are on like that is not enough time for a non you know an environmental justice group who's not very very sophisticated and is you know likely not somebody representing the frontline communities to even think about it let alone respond to it and so like I see the same problems being perpetuated but on the other hand I see why they need to happen because you want to move quickly to solve these problems and how you resolve that time tension, I don't even, I don't even begin to have a solution for, honestly. But yeah, you know, and like those of us immersed in carbon removal conversations, right? Um, we, we push a certain type of urgency because mm -hmm. our identities in some ways, right? The work that we're doing is wrapped yeah. up in yeah. making sure that uh, attention is paid to this. And Look, we know that if you look at the political situation in the United States, windows close. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's important to get work done right now around carbon removal in the US context. Lots, lots of reasons to talk about an accelerated time frame. And at the same time, what we're hearing from environmental justice communities is that a whole bunch of things are urgent. Right. And, and the sorts of things that have been urgent to those communities for a long time have not received any attention or inadequate attention. Um, and so pushing this as one more urgent thing, it doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. Um, we, have, we have to understand that building trust and opening room for conversations and making sure that we do all of this in the right ways, it really will take some time. And maybe it's one of those things where the tortoise beats the hare in the long run, right? You just sort of have to 
be okay with your impatience, live in it, but do the work necessarily to build the coalitions to actually have long-term success. Um, I like to think about it like that, and I hope that that's how we end up moving forward. But I'll pivot away from these conversations and ask a little bit more about the report. I could go on and on. This is something I really find fascinating. But so um, kind of what types of carbon removal do they suggest in this uh, in the report? And in kind, do you have an idea of like in what types of quantities or in you know each decade, what kind of scaling do we need to see? Um, well, that's, and that, that's complicated because the, the report does a lot of different things with scenarios that is mm -hmm. trying to imagine different pathways into the future. Um, and different scenarios um, have different amounts of carbon removal in them based on a whole set of different assumptions. Right? Um, so uh, to, to pick up the first question of what forms of carbon removal are in the report, well, even that is interesting and complicated because of the way that the scenarios process, processes that the IPCC utilizes mm -hmm. um, deal with carbon removal. Mm -hmm. um, so just, just, um, just very quick background, um, the IPCC scenarios process utilizes models called the integrated assessment models. That, um, these, these are models that bring together um, uh, an understanding of the economy with an understanding of the energy system, sometimes with land use, um, sometimes with oceans and, and, and various other things. Um, and what these models try to do is take a set of assumptions on the front end and then project into the future different mm -hmm. pathways that would ultimately keep beneath different warming thresholds. Um, these integrated assessment models for quirky reasons, they don't, um, they don't really bring in a whole bunch of different carbon removal options. In fact, when you go back to the 1.5 degree report, that special report that we talked about earlier, the integrated assessment models only had afforestation mm -hmm. and, and BECS, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, in the models. Mm -hmm. And so if you read that report, literally it says, we need huge amounts of BECS by the end of the century if we're going to meet these, these target goals. But that's not really what the what the report means. That's not what the models are telling us. The, the models are telling us we need lots of carbon removal, right? But the models only show that carbon removal through BECS or afforestation, <laughs> right? A little legacy modeling issue. I mean, that's that's pretty fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wild. And, and, and the translation of the, the, the lines in those reports into the public conversation and the policymaking yes. gets super complicated because um, the IPCC is focused on the science and not necessarily focused on the public messaging, yes. right? And so you can interpret lots of things into these reports that aren't actually meant by them, mm -hmm. right? Um, in, in this most recent report, in the, um, the, the working group three piece of the sixth assessment cycle, um, again, there's afforestation and there's BECS, and to some limited extent in some of the modeling runs, there was direct air capture. Right, but there's no enhanced mineralization. There's you know there's no ocean stuff. Um, and so again, when you look at these scenario sections of the report, what they say is we need lots of afforestation and bex. But again, what that means is there's probably going to be a need for lots of carbon removal of all types. Yeah. Right. If you're going to meet these um, temperature targets. Um, in, in terms of amounts. Um, 
basically this sixth assessment report seems to be consistent with what we heard from the 1.5 report. Um, in that, hundreds of gigatons of gross removals will be needed over the remainder of the century. Mm -hmm. um, just, just by way of context, one of the things this report makes clear is that something like 50 gigatons of carbon dioxide are going into the atmosphere every year right now from human sources. Mm -hmm. About 65 gigatons when other gases that um, contribute to climate change are taken into account, right? Um, and then by mid-century, this report is suggesting, you know, somewhere between one to 10 gigatons per year will have to be taken out of the atmosphere per year um, if the 1.5 target is to be met. Um, in big overshoot scenarios, so if we go way beyond 1.5, then way more carbon removal would be needed later in the century to bring the world back to that 1.5 target, right? Um, if the world turns it around on emissions starting today, then less carbon removal will be needed, right? So that the, the, the report makes those sorts of distinctions clear as well. It's a sliding scale, right? Yep. It's just sort of what we do today impacts how much we have to um, get our carbon, to get our scaling of carbon dioxide removal up. So was there one piece of the report or about around carbon removal particular that struck you as particularly interesting or new or something that is being overlooked when either policymakers or the public think about this conversation? Well, I think I think the the the, the new thing for me is, is also kind of an old thing, um, but it was it was it was sharply stated in the report. It is this idea that carbon removal is not just a long-term proposition, it's needed now, right? And so I think this idea that um, carbon removal in the context of hard to abate sectors mm -hmm. is going to be needed um, like starting tomorrow and over the next few decades has to be a part of the policy conversation much more strongly moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, now, what that means is we're, go we're gonna have discussion, we're gonna have fights over what a hard to abate sector is, right? <laughs> I mean, if you if you take aviation, there are you know flying around in airplanes. There are basically three things we could do. You could um, reduce or prevent flying. Yeah. Right, and lots of ways to do that with carbon taxes or by making other forms of transportation more attractive or make um, flying socially undesirable or culturally undesirable. Right, lots of different things could happen in that bucket. Um, the, the second possibility is fuel switching. So move to lower carbon biofuels, for instance, and, and start to wean off uh, fossil-based jet fuel. Um, but then what else have you got? The third bucket is using carbon removal elsewhere to clean up the emissions that are coming from continuing to fly people and goods around the planet. Yeah. Right? And so, 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 so the extent to which aviation is actually a hard to abate sector depends to some large extent on that first bucket. Right. How much collectively are we willing to give up flying? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I often feel like to make the policy and sustainability arguments work, you, the more you ask people to sacrifice, the less it feels like it is. And as you know, I, I know that's not the most scientifically sound thing, but I often come from a perspective of practicality and what can we get done? And I don't think anyone wants to give up flying and it's become part of life. And even if you can change it in the US, can you change it in China and in India and Africa, other countries that are in a different part of their uh, life cycle, if you will, um, 
middle class life cycle. Yeah, I, I, I tend towards the two, which is let's try to get it reduce the emissions as much and then the three, but it could be the wrong answer. I don't know. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an open question. We, we're going to be discussing uh, vigorously these sort of <laughs> things in, in, into the future. Right? Um, and, and, and you can look to places like France, which have, you know, I, I think I'm right on this, have basically banned short haul flights now, right? And, and forced people to take um, high speed trains. Now, you can imagine in the United States, if we actually bought out a function, uh, built out a, a functioning high speed rail network, that taking trains might actually be more attractive for short haul mm -hmm. trips than hopping um, on an airplane. Right. And again, if you price carbon, then people will start to make these decisions based on their pocketbooks. Yep. Um, and so all, all, all of these things fall into that first bucket and will be important moving forward. The IPCC report actually deals with this in a, in a, in a new and distinct way. Um, mm -hmm. In this most recent Working Group 3 report, talking about social actions, mm -hmm. um, talking about the capacity for cultural change, um, really taking account of justice considerations in the decision-making, not just economic feasibility and the desires of the most powerful, Yeah. right? So yeah. uh, all, all of this is of a mix, right? Carbon removal can't be thought of just as, um, you know, the, the magical solution, which is going to make all of our problems go away. We've got right. to have a conversation that, that looks across all of these different dimensions. Yeah, and I, I just have to throw in from, because it comes from my background at working in government, but if we really want to create functioning transit systems, we also have to figure out how to do it economically and efficiently and permitting and all these things make it so difficult to actually create really good high quality rail trail, you know, railroad corridors and um, even light rail solutions within these cities. And so it, I don't know, policymakers need to be thinking also about how to make these hard to abate sectors easier to abate, I guess. Um, yeah. And that means doing unsexy work, like making permitting easier and rethinking some of these approaches that we've just been doing over and over, but only lead to spiraling costs. So, yeah. um, well, we're, we're almost out of time. So anything else that Simon, you wanted to highlight from the report or anything else you would like our listeners to be thinking about after, um, uh, you know, after this release? No, I, th I think we've covered a whole bunch of ground there, Radhika. I really appreciate the, the conversation. Yeah, this has been fantastic. Um, I always end my shows with a little bit of good news. I try to steer it towards sustainability I have taken creative license and I'm going to take creative license again this week and just say that I was pretty excited to see Tiger Woods back playing at the Masters. Really random. I'm not a golfer. I am no zero interest in it, but you know, who doesn't like a nice resurrection story in this day and age where it feels like there's a lot of bad news. It's nice to see a guy who has pushed through some pretty unbelievable events and things in his life to um, you know, be able to walk around on the masters again. So uh, good job, Tiger. I'm sure you don't listen to this podcast, but I'm rooting for you. And Simon, thank you so much for joining me this week. I really enjoyed our conversation. I, um, I can't wait to see the work that you guys figure out, particularly around the you know, equity and social justice questions. 
and look forward to how we can, I can incorporate some of those findings and discoveries into my own work on a daily basis. So thank you so much. Yeah, and thanks for all you do, Radhika. I appreciate the conversation today. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.